Shall we start? Yep. Okay. Welcome everyone to sorry, I sorry about that. Welcome everybody to the second week of the Torah in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic interpretation with Dr. Hanan Gafni. Um, I'm gonna I'm assuming you guys know the drill, so I'm gonna quickly run through again. I'm gonna promote people to be panelists. Um and you're welcome to accept that. It does not mean that you have to speak. It just means that we'll be able to see your faces. So please feel free to turn on your cameras um, and you'll be able to raise your hands to ask questions or put questions in the chat. If you're watching on Facebook, you can put questions in the comments and I will pass them on to Dr. Gaffney. Um, and with that, I think we can begin. Thank you so much. Okay. So uh, good evening. And last week we had to start our uh, talk mentioning Yom HaShoah, so today uh, it falls on Yom HaZikaron, so we'll try to dedicate our learning today. Uh, last week we did it for the uh, people who passed away in the Shoah, and today we're going to do it for those Israeli fallen soldiers and victims of terrorism, so we will learn Le'ilui Nishmatam. Okay, so I want to start with a brief review for the sake of those who haven't been here uh, in the opening session, so we'll do a brief review and then we'll proceed. Uh, so the, the theme of this mini-series, as I mentioned last week, is about the different modes of interpretation that became the prevailing types of interpretation in the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic world in uh, antiquity into the medieval period. And we're trying to explore the different types of interpretation, but also the dialogue that took place between these two, uh, between these different competing uh, types of interpretation. So that's the goal of this uh, mini-series. And uh, so here you see uh, the basic outline of the series. What we did last week, last week we started by introducing the differences between traditional and critical ways of viewing the Bible. That was our opening uh, stage for this class. And we started by talking about uh, trying to distinguish between these two uh, ways of looking at the text. For critical scholars, we started very often people who belong to the academic world view the Bible and uh, as part of the Bible, the Torah, as a human composition. And therefore, uh, when they try to understand this text, they usually tend to contextualize this document, try to see it within the historical time frame or the place to contextualize the, the text and thus understand what the text is saying within it's original, according to its original meaning, back then in the past. Uh, from their perspective, the key to understand the text is kind of forget what we believe in, what we think, move back in time and try to understand what did this text mean back then. Uh, that was the way that we described critical ways of understanding the text, but uh, traditional people tend to view the text in a very, very different way. Uh, from the traditional perspective, the Torah, the Bible, and the Torah as part of the Bible are considered as divine texts. These are these texts reflect or present the word of God. And therefore, traditional people are not willing to view this text as something that belongs to the past, some primitive ideas that were presented in the past. They believe if this text is divine, it's timeless. And therefore, it uh, contains the truth. It remains accurate. It's moral. It's not a, it's a text that is inspiring. It's a text that we can actually live. It's applicable for our times. So all these ideas are rooted in the conception that the Bible, from a traditional perspective, is not a text, is not a human composition, but rather a divine uh, word. And therefore, 
does not belong to a particular time and place in history. This different approach to the text has a very important impact on the way that traditional people tend to interpret the Bible. Once you assume this text, once you add all these assumptions about the text as an accurate and authentic and inspiring text, if you want to understand the text, not just as a text that belongs to the past, but also something that belongs to us in the present and in the future, it has a lot of impact on how we read the text. Our mini series that is devoted to Jewish, Christian readings, Islamic readings of the Bible has one thing in common. All parties, all different religious groups have one thing in common. All these people read the Bible in a traditional manner. Both Jews, Christian, and Muslims, when they look at the Bible, when they read those stories, they understood these texts as uh, divine words and therefore something that we need to treat not as a, an ancient document, but as a living composition that is meaningful for us even nowadays. Nevertheless, although they all read the Bible in a traditional manner, different traditional people might have different issues with the text. They have they develop different notions how to understand the Bible because different people have different beliefs. They come up with their own background, their own uh, ideas about what they think uh, religion is about. And therefore, although everybody shares the idea that this is a, a divine text and everybody reads it in a traditional manner, people, different religions, and even sometimes within different religions, people might read the Bible in a different manner. The goal, the purpose of this uh, mini series is to try to see the different nuances, how the Jews read the text, how the Christians read the text, and how did Muslims read uh, the Torah, and then also talk about the different, uh, the dialogue, discuss the dialogue or sometimes debates, uh, polemics between these three religious parties. Previous session, so this was the basic introduction that we started with last week. Then we proceeded and we started discussing uh, the Jewish way of understanding the Bible, the Jewish reading of the Torah. So that was the theme of last week. And again, I'll just review it very, very briefly for those of you who haven't been here. Uh, we started by saying that uh, very often uh, Jewish uh, students or scholars are more uh, familiar with rabbinic texts, with the rabbinic tradition. But uh, in ancient times, there was actually a wide variety of interpretations to the Bible, and they're not only included in what we call rabbinic literature. For example, uh, we have the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. These ancient texts also provide us some readings or understandings of the Old Testament or of the Hebrew Bible. We have uh, texts that belong to what we call Jewish Hellenistic literature, meaning texts that were composed in Greek by Jews who were uh, influenced by the Hellenistic culture. We have ancient translations. We have poet poetry. So it's not all about rabbinic literature. Uh, there's a wide range of texts, but we discussed in the previous session, we wanted to devote our attention to two main or dominant ways of uh, interpretations that were became that had a lot of impact later on, and uh, we will address them briefly. That's what we did again last week. We started speaking about the work of Philo, Jew who lived in Alexandria and the, from the years uh, minus 20 to the year plus 50. So he was one person we spoke about. And we also addressed uh, the way or discussed the way that the rabbis read the text. So we'll say one word about each one of them because that will be crucial for us in order to compare that to what will come later on. So we started with speaking about 
the way or the mode of interpretation that was introduced by Philo. Philo was a philosopher, a very rational thinker that was uh, very much influenced by Greek philosophy. Uh, when Philo read the Bible, re Philo reads the Bible, his main obstacle was to make sense of a lot of descriptions and mainly descriptions that talk about God that do not seem uh, rational to him, that do not seem uh, that they fit what he learned, his philosophical training. Uh, it could be miracles, but not just miracles, even ordinary or descriptions of events and mainly descriptions of God that did not seem to him uh, as rational. Philo's main contribution was that when we read the Bible, we should not take everything literally. Very often, Philo was suggesting we should understand the text as if this is an allegorical presentation of some ideas. So if we read a story, the story didn't necessarily take place in its literal sense. Perhaps we should view it as a symbolic presentation of some other idea that the text is trying to bring forth or to explain. Also, when, when Philo addresses laws, he also tends to read them as allegories. However, when it comes to mitzvot, to laws, Philo will not say that we do not need to fulfill the mitzvot in a literal sense, but he might add an additional layer, an additional allegorical understanding of the essence of these uh, commandments, of the essence of these mitzvot. So this is Philo's uh, great contribution, coming again, rooting from his philosophical uh, education and the idea that we need to read the Bible as allegory. When we spoke about the rabbis, the key word was drash. This drash is a very hard word to explain in two sentences, but I would say it's the attempt of the rabbis to uh, devote uh, their attention to every nuance in the text and to interpret it accordingly, try to attribute significance to every nuance in the text. Why did the rabbis adopt this mode of thinking, the drash. Uh, I, the rabbis were not big philosophers and what concerns them is not really to make sense of the text from a rational perspective. It was mainly to make this text applicable. The Torah leaves us a lot of holes or gaps in the description, how to fulfill the mitzvot, also reality changes. So the rabbis were mainly concerned how to apply the law. This is a very traditional idea. They believe this text is not something that remains in the past, we need to live this composition and therefore we need to come up with a system that would enable us to uh, fill in those gaps or to update or uh, see how we can apply the same rulings in later circumstances. So this is mainly uh, the idea, I think, of the drash. Uh, the rabbis read the text literally, but they still manage to uh, try to explain what the how the text should be carried out, uh, even in places where the text is not speaking explicitly. When it comes to stories, the rabbis also use the drash, but here the point is not so much to apply the law, but to make the law meaningful, or to make the stories meaningful or inspiring. So they won't be just historical uh, events, but something that speaks to us, that makes it meaningful for us. So this is a brief review over what we do, we've done last week, understanding the gap between critical and traditional ways of reading the text, and talking about two dominant approaches, two dominant traditional approaches that try to make sense of the text from within the Jewish world. Philo and allegory and the rabbis with their derash. Today, our attention will be devoted to the Christian world, Christian readings of the Torah. What we will do today, we will open up by talking about the challenge that the Torah posed 
for a, from a Christian perspective. And then we'll talk about the prevailing mode of interpretation in the ancient Christian world. Once we will become more familiar with the Christian way of reading the Torah, we can talk next week about the conflicts that emerge between the Jewish and the Christian way of understanding this text. So we'll start with the uh, challenge. The great challenge in early uh, Christianity. In a, at a fairly early stage in Christianity, already in the first century, when Christianity becomes an important and independent religion, Christians preach not only to Jews, but also to uh, pagans and try to expand the number or uh, make this uh, religion appeal not just to Jewish audience, but also to non-Jewish audience uh, within the Roman Empire. Christians uh, inherited the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, but they have a very big uh, issue with understanding the Hebrew Bible or what they sometimes call the Old Testament. When Christians read the Bible, something was missing from their perspective and there was a big obstacle uh, in the Hebrew Bible from their perspective. So what was the big challenge for Christians reading the Bible, reading the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible? So I think we can talk about two main issues, two big challenges. The first one involves uh, the laws. If you wanna try to preach and uh, try to get new people to join your new religions, your new religion, uh, the first thing that they would encounter is the massive number of laws in the Hebrew Bible. Christians initially inherited the Hebrew Bible as part of their tradition. And if they wanna preach, and if they wanna convince and convert pagans to accept this uh, Torah, they have to address the legal component of the Torah. And as you all know, there are many, many, many laws in the Torah. And the first step that uh, somebody who would wanna join this new religion would be to circumcise. It's not really something very uh, appealing or it's, it's not something that is very easy uh, to convince uh, foreigners, somebody who's not part of this religion to accept. So that was one big obstacle uh, for, from Christian perspective, reading the Torah. Uh, the other element was lack of references to Jesus or Christianity in general in the Hebrew Bible. Christians expected that if, if uh, the Christian message about Jesus, about Christianity is actually true, it should have been alluded to or found some uh, hints or some references already in the Hebrew Bible, already in the Torah and later books of the, of the Hebrew Bible. And as you all know, when we read the Torah and when we read the prophets or the writings, we don't find Jesus there. We don't find anything about Christianity in, the, in those texts. So we can talk about two main obstacles. One thing that was too much in the Torah, that is too many laws on the one hand, that was what was found in the text that was troubling. And number two, what was missing in the text, and that is references, theological, uh, the theological component, references to Jesus or references to Christianity as a whole. This was a big, a big uh, issue for Christians, how to deal with the Hebrew Bible, how to deal with, uh, with this tradition, with this uh, ancient tradition. So what did Christians, how did Christians deal with this, uh, this dilemma, with this problem, with this great challenge? So there are two possible solutions that we find in the ancient Christian world. One option was to argue or to claim that uh, the Hebrew Bible lost its importance or lost its value, and it was actually replaced 
by the New Testament. So initially, some Christians might argue, initially, God gave the Torah to Moses. The Hebrew Bible was the original tradition, but as soon as the Jews sin and they don't accept the new message of Jesus and new, they don't accept Christianity, from now on, the Torah is, uh, loses its importance, loses its value, and it's being replaced by a new composition, by the New Testament. That was one path or one option that Christians could have adopted. Uh, this path or this solution is not relevant for us because that would mean abandoning the Hebrew Bible altogether. Some Christians actually took that path, but they're not going to be the main concern of our uh, mini-series. What we're mainly interested is in a new idea that emerges in Christianity, essentially introduce a new mode of interpretation for the Hebrew Bible, come up with a new creative uh, way of reading the Hebrew Bible that will try to, uh, that will use or help us to overcome those two obstacles, the legal aspect and the theological uh, problem. And this is indeed what many, many Christians do. And this is the concern. This is the thing we will talk about today. How did Christians manage to read the Hebrew Bible and find or overcome uh, the legal aspect of the Bible and also to find references to Christianity and particularly to Jesus in the Hebrew Bible? So what was the new mode of interpretation that Christians come up? Well, it has many, many names, and we will not talk about the nuances or the, the small differences between them. We'll just introduce us ourselves to some of the titles that we're giving to this type of interpretation. Uh, some people refer to it as typology, prefiguration, not just figuration, prefiguration, or allegory. These are different names, and we can talk about the different nuances, but over, generally speaking, what Christians did was argue that the Bible should not be taken literally. We should not understand the Bible according to its literal meaning, but rather view it in a, as a symbolic text. We should try to read the text in a symbolic manner using the idea, the conception of allegory. And if we use that, we can overcome those two obstacles. How does that work? So let's start with the legal component and then we'll focus on the stories. From a Christian perspective, when we read a specific law or a commandment, some Christians would argue it shouldn't be taken literally. You're not supposed to, if the Torah speaks about circumcision, it doesn't mean you actually need to take a knife and uh, cut the flesh. It could just be a symbolic idea or a, an abstract concept that is being expressed in literal words or in a literal, literal presentation, but it really is supposed to be taken as a way of uh, coming up with a symbolic idea or value. So it's not something that we should carry out in the literal sense, that's on the one hand. But also when it comes to the theological component, Christians argue that some of the stories in the Bible, some of the descriptions in the Bible are not just history, they're not just descriptions of ancient events that took place in the past, but actually they should be viewed as some form of uh, symbolic prophecy for events, for uh, 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 themes or, or events in the life of Jesus. Or they might be symbolic presentations for things that will uh, become very important for, Christian, for Christians or in Christianity. The word allegory is something that we came across a few minutes ago in the work of Philo. So we can find some resemblance in the way that Christians read the text. 
to the way or in the in the, the way that Philo read the Bible. As a matter of fact, Christians were the ones who kept the writings of Philo. They were the ones who uh, were studying these texts and uh, made them available. However, we should be uh, aware of a very, very big gap or difference between Philo's allegories and Christian allegories. What is the big difference? When Philo was using allegory, it was mainly rooted in a philosophical context. He's, he reads the Bible, he feels that the story doesn't make any sense. It couldn't have happened the way it's being told. We must view this as a symbol. We must read it as allegory. Christians are not troubled by the irrational component of the Bible, by the fact that the text makes no sense historically. What they're mainly concerned is in seeing those descriptions as something that could also, in addition to its literal meaning, could also be considered as some sort of prophecy uh, that will also uh, foreshadow what will happen later on in Christianity. From Christian perspective, we're not really concerned whether the event took place or didn't take place. The historical issue is not the main issue. Did it happen or didn't it happen? The main concern is we should read the stories and feel that these stories are also predicting or uh, foreshadowing things that will become essential uh, for Christians, mainly to find Jesus or important episodes of Jesus' life or principles of Christian faith in the Torah. Another difference between Philo and the and Christians is, also, is connected to the laws. When Philo read the laws, he felt the laws should be take, practiced in a literal sense. He only was willing to provide an additional symbolic layer for those commandments. When Christians uh, approach laws, here the, the, it's being reversed. Christians will say it shouldn't be understood in the literal sense at all. It's only a symbolic presentation of some idea. It's not something that is supposed to be carried out in the literal sense. So again, we find some connection between these two types of readings. They both encourage one to read the text using symbolic language, reading stories as allegory. However, uh, the, the motivation is very, very different. For Philo, it's a philosophical uh, motivation. And for Christians, it's mainly to find Christianity in the Bible. What I will want to do now is give you a bunch of demonstrations. So we'll read a few passages and we will see how the Christians read stories in the Bible. We'll focus on the stories and the theological component and not on legal part. So where do we find these Christian allegorical uh, readings of the Bible? The earliest uh, demonstrations could be found already in the New Testament itself. The New Testament often, often refers to or addresses or elaborates events that appear in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. We can find already in the New Testament examples for, past, for stories or events that appear in the Old Testament that are understood allegorically as some form of prophecy about uh, Christianity. So that's going to be the first type of source we're going to use. The other, the second type of sources or the other group of sources is, is found in church fathers literature. So we're talking about central figures in early Christianity, let's say from the second to the eighth century or so. In church fathers literature, we also find many numerous examples of allegorical readings of the Hebrew Bible. Readings that will try through those, uh, their readings, they try to find Christianity already in the Old Testament. 
So what we will do now is read a bunch of examples. We'll read a passage from the Hebrew Bible, and we will try to see how did Christian read the, how did Christians read this text new in the New Testament or in Church Fathers literature. And each example will exa will try to advance a little more or try to see another angle of this uh, phenomenon. So let's start with the first example. We just uh, finished Pesach and uh, Pesach recently. So let's talk. Let's read one passage from the story of uh, Pesach. And I'm referring now to the story of the crossing of the sea. I don't know who's available. Does anybody want to read the text for us? Exodus 14. Nobody volunteers. I'll do it, but I'm happy to hear other voices. I can do it. Oh, sorry. Okay. And everybody else can join as well, even if we don't see our faces. Yeah. Does anyone want to read? All right. Next time. Uh, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. So I'm sure you remember the story, right? The sea is split into two. And the Israelites walk in the middle, right, in the midst of the sea and remain dry. Does anybody want to guess? Okay, from a Jewish perspective, we know it's a historical description, right? The Jews walk through the sea, the sea splits, and they just walk through and remain dry. But how would Christians read this text? Which Christian idea could be found in this passage, in this uh, uh, passage, right? And I'll give you, I'll try to give you a little bit of a hint. People who are going through the water. What Christian idea, principle, uh, from a Christian perspective could be found here? You can write or say, if not, I'll give the answer soon, but if anybody wants to guess, your guesses are always more valuable than me giving the answers immediately. What idea, How? what Christian idea, what Christian Principle could be found from the from Christian perspective in this story. The Israelites are crossing through the sea, going through the water. Okay, so I'll give you a little bit of a hint. We'll read the corresponding passage in the New Testament. So now we're going to read from one of the letters of Paul. The New Testament uh, is partially uh, the Gospels, the, the stories of Jesus himself, but then later you have a big chunk of letters composed by Paul uh, to various communities in the ancient world. And in one of the letters, he says as follows, and I'm sure you will see already uh, how what, what I'm aiming here. Uh, so he says in one of his letters, "For I want you to show, for I want you to show, to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized." into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock and follow, that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So we're not interested now in the cloud and in the rock. I wanted you to see what is the word that he uses for this, when he's trying to describe the Jews crossing the sea or passing through the sea. Which important element in Christianity does he view or does he find in this particular passage? What does it mean to go through the sea from his perspective? 
what happened to the Jews? What's the crucial word here? Baptized. Right. The Christians were, from his perspective, this is actually not a story just about the Jews going through the Red Sea. It's actually, uh, in a sense, a prophecy of a, of a later conception that will come up later on. This event is, is essentially about people being baptized and becoming part of the Christian world. You see, the Jews go through the sea, so they're being baptized, and eventually they're also uh, drinking from the spiritual rock, which is Christ, with Jesus. So from his perspective, it's a historical account, but this historical account is way more than just talking about something that happens in the past. We can find in this story something that will already uh, uh, refer or address a very important, crucial Christian element. Why did I choose to start with this passage? Because this passage is actually used by Origen, one of the first church fathers, as a demonstration. He uses this as an example to show this is the difference between the way we Christians read the Bible in contrast to the way that Jews uh, read the text. Jews, from his perspective, don't get it. They read the text in a very technical manner. They feel this text is just talking about some trip that the Jews are doing, some tour that they're doing through water. But Christians argues origin, understand that these stories have a much deeper meaning. And these stories are not just about something in the past. They're also predicting something that will happen in the future. Uh, I want to read just a, a few sentences from here. The Apostle Paul, the teachers of Gentiles in faith and truth, taught the church, which he gathered from the Gentiles, how it ought to be to interpret the books of the laws. So Paul, says uh, Origen, already demonstrates how we Christians are supposed to read the text. I'm skipping a little bit. Uh, for, this, for that reason, he gives us few examples of interpretations that we also might note similar things in other passages. So he's giving us some idea, some sense how text should be read, and we can probably use that same principle and uh, use it elsewhere as well. Lest we believe that by imitation of the text and documents of the Jews, we, we be made uh, disciples. So he didn't want us to feel that since we're using the same text, we're similar to the Jews. No, we read the text differently, and therefore we understand it uh, very, very differently. Uh, and here he goes on and he talks about the particular story that we said here. Uh, so from the, from the Jewish perspective, he says, the Jews just crossed the sea. They left one city, they moved to the other. And he ends by saying, do you see how much different uh, how much Paul's teaching differs from the literal meaning. What the Jews, I'm reading the last few lines, what the Jews supposed to be cross, a crossing of the sea, Paul calls baptism. What they supposed to be a cloud, Paul asserts, is the Holy Spirit. So we see here just one example, but one small and uh, enlightening example that illuminates the big difference between the way that Christians read the text and the way that Jews read the text. It's the same story. It's the same event. But the implications are very, very different. From Jews, it's history. For Christians, it's also prophecy about something that will come up later on. This is a small example, and now I want to proceed to another example. And the next example will actually uh, advance our understanding of the Christian way of reading the text. And for this purpose, I'm using another story from Exodus. A few chapters later, after the crossing of the, of the Red Sea, the Jews... Uh, are having their battle with the Amalekites, with Amalek. Chaya, you want to read another passage? You'll do the Bible parts for us. I'll, I'll, I'll do should the... We, yeah. And wait, should we pause to else? see? Anyone else want to read? 
All right, I guess I'll take it. Uh, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay, so this is one story. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the story. And before we continue, I want to ask you, does anybody guess what would be Christian about this description? We already saw crossing of the sea could mean baptism. So what is it about this story that would become important? What, this, what can this story, uh, in what way can this story be used uh, from Christian perspective? I'll give you a hint. It talks, I want to emphasize something about Moses' hands. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. I, I don't think this is right, but I associate hands <laughs> yeah. with the crucifixion. Excellent. Good. So here we'll see that uh, Christians will use, all, will use this story as a way of finding the cross in the stories of the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. Again, a historical event. It's just an episode that happens somewhere in the desert. But no, it's also a prophecy about something that will become important in the future. But before we do that, I want to read one more passage in the Torah that will also become part of that story. The next story is from Numbers 21, and this is about the bronze serpent. If you remember, uh, the Jews were complaining, giving a hard time to Moses, to Moshe. And uh, essentially, eventually what happens, God sends those uh, serpents among the people and they're biting the people and a lot of people are dying and therefore the, the people cry to Moshe we're going to start from verse 8 Chaya, and the Lord said to Moses verse and 8 Lord, and, uh, sorry. and the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live so Moses made sorry should I keep going yeah so Moses made a, a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serp serpent and live. Okay, so these are two stories that we found in the Hebrew Bible. And we'll try to see now why did they become significant in the Christian world. In the first example, we were reading text from Paul, from the New Testament itself, where an allegorical uh, interpretation is provided for a biblical episode. Now we're going to talk about uh, we're going to use a text that is uh, written in the second century by a guy named Justin Martyr, meaning a Christian saint that was uh, killed by the Roman Empire for his Christian beliefs. And he also, he wrote a book called The Dialogue with Trifo. Trifo was a Jew, Justin was Christian, and Justin and Trifo are discussing uh, Judaism and Christianity. In the course of their, description, of their discussion, Justin uh, approaches Trifo and he says, I can bring you an interesting proof or evidence for Christianity already in the Torah. And this is what he says. And so I'll read the beginning. When the people were fighting against Amalek, I said, this is what Justin is saying, and the son of Nun, I want you to see which two elements he finds in the story. And the son of Nun, who was called by the name of Jesus, Yoshua, was beginning the battle. Moses himself was praying to God, holding out his hand on each side of him. Hur and Aaron held, up, held him up, the whole day, the whole day long, to prevent them from falling as they as he grew tired. If he modified this position, which reproduces the cross, as, as is it, it is written 
in the writings of Moses, the people were defeated. But if he continued in this posture, Amalek was thus far conquered. As long as he held, he was strong, he was strong by the cross. The people did not prevail because Moses was praying so much, but because the, as the name of Jesus was in the beginning of the battle, Moses was making the sign of the cross. So you see here, I think, two elements that he took in the story that became significant. The first one, what Chaya was saying, was the idea of the cross. So Moses' hands are not just, Moses is not just raising his hands, you know, for no purpose. He's trying to make, he's trying to stand in a position that will resemble the shape of the cross. And what else, what other element did he find in the story that is also foreshadowing Christianity? What other element in the story becomes significant for the from the Christian perspective? It's not just Moses' hands that are significant. It's also the soldier. Who is the figure? Who's Moses' disciple in the story? You're pointing his name. <laughs> so we also have Joshua. So Joshua is Jesus in the story. And Moses' hands are the cross. So we have two elements in the story that already could be viewed as some bearing some prophetic aspect uh, of, about Christianity in the past. I think this is a very interesting example that you see that Christians can take two separate elements in the story and use them both simultaneously for uh, talking about uh, Christianity. So here we find the cross and also Jesus. The reason I also brought you the story of the bronze uh, serpent because the same story is also used by Trifle a few passages later on. And with the story of the bronze serpent, he also says that when Moses places the serpent on this on, on uh, this pole or this, it's not just an or a random uh, decision to place in that manner, but rather what Moses did it. He made a cross shape and wrapped the serpent, you know, around the uh, on the cross. And with the power of the cross, the the people are being healed. So here too, he takes a story. He takes an element that could appear as a historical fact, and he makes it meaningful from a Christian perspective, seeing the story as foreshadowing something that will become important in Christianity. So if the first story is about baptism, these two descriptions are about the cross. The cross is already being found in the Hebrew Bible. This is a very fascinating example, and what raised the, uh, what made many scholars be fascinated by this story is the fact that this interpretation might be already might be familiar to the rabbis in the Mishnah. If you recall, in the Mishnah Masechet Rosh Hashanah, uh, when it talks about the blowing of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, it emphasizes the fact that you need to have kavanah. You need to have some, uh, th you have to think or intend to fulfill the mitzvah. And it's not just a technical thing. It's all about the meaning, the intentions that one has. And the Mishnah in Tractate Rosh Hashanah ends with the following passage. It ends with a story. And it came to pass. This is what the Mishnah is saying in Rosh Hashanah. Remember, Mishnah is a second century text, more or less the same time frame as, as uh, Justin's uh, composition. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand and Israel prevailed. But could the hands of Moses wage a battle or lose a battle? Chazal asked. Rather, this is to teach, this is rather to teach that whenever Israel looked on high and subjected their heart to the Father in heaven, they prevailed. But if not, they fell. Likewise, and then he brings the story of the, of the bronze serpent, and I'm skipping the quote, but he says, 
could the serpent kill or could the serpent keep alive? Only whenever Israel looked on high and subjected their heart to the Father, to their Father in heaven, they were healed. But if not, they were perished. I think it's fascinating, and this is what scholars pointed out, that perhaps the rabbis here are showing familiarity with the way that Christians read those texts. And maybe the rabbis are trying to say, uh, are trying to fight this notion that there's something about the hands of Moses or about the serpent that made the Jews uh, win or heal. It's not about that, the rabbis say. It's nothing about Moses' hands. It's nothing about the serpent. It's all about the fact that the Jews or the Israelites subjected their hearts to their father in heaven. I think you can even picture that from the rabbinic perspective, the hands of Moses are not moving, are not drawn to the sides. Maybe Moses is telling them, don't look at me. Look up high, subject your heart uh, to your father in heaven. And maybe this is revealing, and this is already a little bit of what we're going to do next week, revealing some familiarity, Jewish familiarity with, go, with what goes on in the Christian world, and even a response. The Jews are saying, do not take this in any way, do not read this in any way as, the, our, uh, our, as Christians are doing. You should not take this in a way that resembles anything Christian, but rather it's all about what people think, intentions, and nothing about Moses' position or posture. It's nothing about the, the shape of the cross. So this is another uh, interesting example. Uh, before we proceed to the uh, last example, I want to just point out that it's also very clear in uh, ancient Jewish and Christian art how they're having this uh, hidden battle. Uh, this is a demonstration of the hands of Moses in uh, some uh, monastery in Sinai, in uh, the desert of Sinai. And you can see that from the Christian perspective, how are most Moses' hands going to, how are they going to be depicted? It's clear that they're, he's trying to make the shape of the cross. So you see here, you see the Moses in the middle, and these are, this is Aaron and Hu on, their, on his side, and he's trying, he's clearly making a shape of a cross. This is the way that Christians read the story. And by doing that, they find Christianity or find some Christian dogma in this uh, story, in this event. How do you imagine Jews will read the story? How will they depict the story? So from the Jewish perspective, it's always done different. This is just one example from a, a medieval machzor. Uh, you see on the bottom, it says, Ze Moshe ve'aron asher, and it says something about yadav, that they're holding his hands. Moses is never going to be making the shape of the cross in Jewish art. It's always going to be something like this, or sometimes lifting his hands up, because Jews cannot allow uh, depiction or describing illuminating the story of Moses using the shape of the cross. And the same is true with regards to the bronze serpent. This is a Christian uh, visual presentation of the story of the bronze serpent. So you see there's a cross here and the serpent is wrapped around the cross. In Jewish art, never. It will only be maybe in the shape of a T, but never in the shape of the, of the what we know as cross. This is the symbol of Chel Refuah, uh, in the in, in the Israeli army, so you see they also use the same motif of the serpent wrapped around something, but they will put the Magen David on top, and it will certainly not be the shape of a cross. So here you also see some hidden dialogue or hidden uh, debate how to understand these stories. And what's we're mainly concerned now is that Christians try to read their Christian beliefs into the stories. The last example is uh, that we're going to focus on talk about today is a, a very, I would say, very radical way of uh, reading a story in the Bible. 
Yeah, this is the story of Sarah and Hagar. So I'm just reminding you, and then Chaya will be very, will help us reading the passage. So I'm reminding you, Abraham has two wives. His first wife, his beloved wife, was Sarah. But Sarah does not have any kids. And she, 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 uh, Sarah suggests that perhaps Abraham can marry uh, her servant and have some kids. And this is what happens. And as soon as that happens, there is this uh, competition between Hagar and Sarai. And eventually Sarah asks Abraham to send Hagar away from Abraham's home, from Abraham's house. And that is indeed what will happen later on. She will return back to the house of Abraham, but eventually she will be thrown away uh, from his house. So we're first going to read the passage in the Torah, and then we'll see how Christians interpret this story in, uh, in the New Testament and also in later Christian literature. Kaya. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Avram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Avram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Avram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Avram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Avram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. Okay, so this is just the beginning of this long tale of Sarai and Hagar. Now look, we're going to see how does Paul, in one of his letters, how does he read this story uh, in the letters to the Galatians, And he says as follows, for it is written, tell me how does he understand. Um, already he's trying to uh, get your uh, senses alert. So tell me, who is Hagar and who is Sarah from Christian perspective? Okay. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may inter be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem is free, above is free, and she is our mother. So what does he say here? There are two wives, Hagar, the one who's being sent away, the slave that is being sent away, and the one that is the free woman that remains Abraham's uh, beloved wife. Who, is who does each one of these two wives, wives resemble allegorically from uh, Paul's perspective? So who is Sarah and who is Hagar? We'll start with who's Hagar and who's Sarah. What does he say? Who is Hagar here? The Jewish covenant. Right. So Hagar presents the Jewish covenant, or what he calls right to the present Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim shel Mata. Not the Yerushalayim above shel Mala, but the, the earthly Yerushalayim. Those are the Jews. So Hagar is the Jews. They're married to Abraham, but they're not really... The, they're not the promise. The promise does not is not referring does not correspond to them. They will remain slaves and they will be rejected, expelled from Abraham's house. And who is Sarah? So you did, you got you got fifty percent of the answer. Now you have to complete your answer. Who is Sarah? The Christians. So Sarah is the new covenant, right? It's not the Old Testament. This new covenant. This is Jesus. These are Christians. This is Yerushalayim above Yerushalayim. 
Now, why is this a very radical way of reading a text? So he's reading the story, and again, he's interpreting it allegorically. It's not just a, some ancient historical description, but it actually bears importance for the future. It's a story about what will happen in the future. It's a story about Jews and Christians, an Old Testament and a New Testament, an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. But it, this is a very radical way of reading the text. Why? Why is this a very radical way of taking a text? From a historical perspective, who are the Jews descendants of? Are we descendants of Hagar or of Sarai? Of Sarai. So the Jews are descendants of Sarai, right? We're the, they're the descendants of Raham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. How can you take a text and say that the Jews are associated with Hagar and that the Christians are associated with Sarah? It goes against the historical description, the historical narrative itself. Well, that did not trouble Christians when they read the stories in the Bible. Very often, they take a text, they take a story, and they would read it allegorically, even if it violates the historical uh, occurrences itself, the, the historical description itself. So from a historical perspective, Jews are descendants of Sarah. But from allegorical, from a spiritual perspective, Jews are symbolized by the figure of Hagar, and Christians become Sarah. I'll give you another example. I didn't include this in the presentation. Uh, let's talk, for example, about uh, Yaakov and Esav, the two sons of uh, Isaac. So one of them is being blessed and the other one is uh, being uh, rejected. Again, the same story. Esav in Christian thought will become associated with Jews. Yaakov could become Christians. And again, you ask yourself, how can you do that? How can you make Esav be connected to the Jews? And how can you make Yaakov be connected to Christians? Jews are descendants of Yaakov. That does not trouble uh, Christian allegorical uh, readings of the text. They can, take, they can separate between the allegorical meaning, the symbolic story, and the historical occurrences. And they're not denying the fact that this happened historically. It's a historical, accurate description. It's not like Philo who's, who's suspecting, did the story happen or not? From Christian perspective, these are actual events. But from a spiritual, from an allegorical perspective, they could be totally reversed, and suddenly Hagar could become the Jews and Sarai can become Christians. I'll give you one more example, a later example. You remember the story of Noah. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. From a historical perspective, the Jews are descendants of Shem, right? We're descendants of Shem. That's anti-Semitism, because we are descendants of, the, of, the, of Shem. But Christians actually associate Jews with Ham, a different son of Noah. If you recall, Noah become, gets drunk and he's lying naked in his tent and Ham runs out and tells his brother, look at our father. And it's only Shem who's willing to cover Noah and uh, save him from this terrible embarrassment. Christians say this is exactly the story of the Jews. They saw how Jesus was being crucified and they were just laughing about it, making a big deal about it. Just like Ham was exposed to Noah's nakedness and didn't do anything about it. He was just telling everybody outside. So Ham becomes the Jews. And again, you ask yourself, how can you do that? How can you read? How can you associate between Ham and, and the Jews? The Jews are supposed to be Shem, but no. There's the historical aspect, and then there's also the symbolic understanding of the same event. Uh, so what we've done today, we started speaking about the way Christians read the text. In contrast, to the Jewish drash that takes the text more literally, Christians were drawn 
to uh, Philo's modes of thinking, reading the text symbolically. The goal, the idea was not a philosophical issue, but more of a theological issue. By reading it allegorically, we can overcome then we can overcome the, the fact that Jesus is not in the Bible, that Christianity is not in the Bible. Yes, literally speaking, it's not there. But from a spiritual perspective, the deep understanding of the text is that the Hebrew Bible is actually all about uh, Christianity. It starts with a few examples, but as time goes by, we can say that almost every important story in the Bible, especially in the Torah, will become something about Christianity. Uh, one more example, the binding of Isaac, right? The peak of Jewish, of the of Sefer Bereshit, such an important story becomes the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Just like Abraham is willing to sacrifice his son, Isaac, Abraham here resembles God and Isaac resembles Jesus, right? So God was willing to sacrifice his son the way that Abraham is sacrificing Isaac. So true, it's a historical event, but it's also something about future Christianity. Uh, for those of you who want some homework for until we start next week, we're not going to see this example together. Uh, there's another in interesting, very interesting example of how Christians read the Bible allegorically. And I'll just give you some uh, clues or some hints how to understand this text. And maybe we'll address this at the beginning of next session. This is the story of Moses' veil. Again, if you recall, Moses descends from Mount Sinai and the people of Israel can't look at his face because he's shining, he's glowing. So Moses needs to put a veil over his face, to cover his face, right? Uh, and when he, whenever he's uh, speaking to the people of Israel, he has to cover his face. It's only when he's speaking to God that he can take away, he would remove his veil. But when he's with, in the presence of the Israelites, there's always a veil that separates between him and the people who are speaking to him. So this is the story in the Bible. Uh, when Paul reads this text, he has a very unique and very interesting way of understanding the story. I'm going to read it for you, and you will need to tell me maybe next week, if you're interested, uh, tell me what is this an allegory for. This is a sophisticated one. Uh, in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the end, but their minds are hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So what I want to ask you, try to think, if you can get a sense for next week, maybe at the end of next week, if somebody wants to uh, discuss this, what is this an allegory for? How did Christians understand the story of Moses' veil? What idea in Christianity does this uh, story uh, try to teach us? What is the idea from Christian perspective to this, uh, this uh, description, for this description in the Bible? What does Moses' veil symbolize? So this is homework for next week. Uh, and on a happy note, this is the Jews and the Christians eventually becoming closer to each other without any veil, but this is already uh, to be discussed later on. So we're done now with the brief description of Christian interpretation. And if we have Jews and we have Christians, so what we're going to expect next week is discuss the battles, battles between Jews and Christians. How should, be the, how should the Bible be read? Should we read the Bible literally, the way Jews read it, or should the Bible be read 
allegorically the way that Christians read it. So this is the theme we will elaborate on next week. Once we a little bit became familiar with each independent mode of interpretation, we'll try to see how did each camp, how did each religious group address or uh, treat the alternative way of understanding the Bible. But that is going to remain for next week. Chaya, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rav Gafni. Um, and thank you to everyone who joined us this week. And please join us again next week, as well as we, I want to remind everyone that our summer COLL applications are closing soon. So please check that out if you're interested. And we have a few spots left in our high school summer program and our middle school summer program. So if you or someone you know might be interested in that, please encourage them to check that out. We also have plenty of other classes, a bunch of really, really exciting offerings during this Spheres month. So please check those out at drisha.org. And thank you so much for joining us and looking forward to next week. Thank you.